Hi, everybody. My name is Paige, and I am the Creative Arts Manager at Grace Church Barberton. Welcome to our Sunday service podcast. We are so glad that you have checked us out and you are listening. This is the live recording of our Sunday message, and we hope you are encouraged and challenged by what you hear. Let's jump into culture, cliches, and the story of God. How many of you have ever felt helpless before? Raise the hands. How many of you ever felt helpless before, okay? If you, if you have your hand down, you're lying because you were a newborn baby at one time, and even though you may not have felt it, felt it, you were helpless at one time, right? I remember, though, there was a moment when I was in middle school that I was completely and utterly helpless, and, and my life was kind of uh, slipping away from me, right? I was eating dinner with my family around my grandma's table, and we were eating there, and my grandma made dinner, and it was the classic home-style dinner. You had your roast beef, you had your mashed potatoes, you had your green beans, your dinner rolls, which you didn't have one of those. You had 14 of those, right? They were so good, right? All the fixings were there. We were having a good time together. And Joel, middle school Joel, was really excited to eat that night for one reason or another, right? I was growing. I was excited about grandma's food. And I took a bite of roast beef, a really big bite, of roast beef. And roast beef, if you've eaten roast beef before, you know this, right? It takes a while to kind of get it to a point where swallowing it is safe, right? Well, I didn't take that moment. I decided to swallow it, and it got lodged in my throat. So I was actively choking, okay? Now, Joel, middle school Joel, had never experienced choking before, so Joel didn't know what to do to tell his family that something was going on, right? So what I did was this. In my utter helplessness, in my moment of despair, in the moment where I cannot breathe anymore, I got up out of my seat, and I walked over to my where my dad was, and I just stood there. I literally just stood there. And my dad looked up at me and he's like, what? And I was like, and he's like, oh, oh, he's like, can't breathe. He's choking. And so my dad, he gets me, he heimlicks me. The roast beef comes out of me, right? And everything was fine at that point. But I remember, I remember it changed my perspective on eating forever, right? And then it changed my perspective on teaching my kids to eat forever. My daughter puts this big bite of food in her mouth. I'm like, oh my word, it's going to happen to me now, right? And it's changed me because in that moment, here's what I realized. I was helpless. I was completely helpless in need of someone else to step in and help me. And I think today what we're going to see is Jesus is the one that stepped in in the midst of our helplessness. That he is the one who stepped in, and you and I, you and I first have to recognize that we are helpless and lost and in need of a Savior, and that Savior being Jesus. We're in the midst of a series called Culture, Clichés, and the Story of God, and we're walking through this series because there's a lot of stories that you and I hear on a daily, weekly, monthly basis inside of our world, inside of our culture. Our culture, through arts, through movies, through music, through just stories, are telling us a story, a story on how to view the world, a story on how to live in this world. And we're looking at this series because we would believe that the story of God is better And that ultimately, when you look at the story of God, it shows you not just how to live life, but who came into our lives to save us. And as we've been looking at this last week, if you weren't here, I I would invite you to take a look at last week, because we talked about it like this. 
We live in a world that kind of feels like a wave pool at times. If you've ever been in a wave pool, right, you know that the wave is crashing and crashing. You're just trying to survive, right? They call it fun nowadays. You're just trying to survive the wave and all this stuff. But in the midst of the world around us, it can feel like you're navigating all of these stories, all of these moments, all of these things. It feels like you're just trying to navigate the wave pool. We said last week that there's two primary waves that are hitting us right now that continually kind of come and dictate the stories and dictate the lens of how we view the world. The first wave is individualism. And I won't go into detail. We talked about it last week, so take a look. And the second wave is spirituality. And those two things hold hands and they dictate how you and I may navigate the world or see the world or what we hear from the world. And if you know anything about wave pools, the only way to know where your friends are, your siblings are in the midst of it is to get out of it. We're going to gain a reference point. I want us to step out of the wave pool, per se, for a moment. Three Sundays, right? We're just going to do a series for three Sundays where we step out of the wave pool and we look at some of these sayings or some of these viewpoints or some of the lenses that our world would say to look at life and living it through and say, is that actually the way that God tells us to live it through? Is it actually the better story, which is God's story? What does that look like as we navigate the world around us? So today, where we're going to jump into, is we're going to jump into another cliche that you and I maybe have heard before, maybe you've, you've seen this before, maybe you've written it before, whatever it may be, right? But today, we're going to dissect this statement. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves which there's a lot of ways I could take this, but here's the first thing I noticed about this statement, right? This is a, honestly, this was coined um, way, way back, but what was really popularized by Benjamin Franklin inside of our kind of early American nation beginnings. But here's the first thing that I noticed about this statement is that you and I recognize we need help, right? If you think about it, we could go a lot of ways with this statement to start. But what this, this statement makes me think is we don't lack the understanding that we need help. On, on a personal level, right, you and I might recognize we need help. Maybe you are in a, a hard relationship right now and you're, you're screaming mentally inside your help, 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 right? For some of us, we are struggling mentally and emotionally, inside of what's going on in our world, and we're screaming out for help. For some of us, we're going through physical things, and you're screaming out for help. No matter where you're at, I think that you come to a point, you're in the point, or maybe you just walk through a point in your life where you recognize you need help. But I also think when we look at the world around us, we live in the ever-ongoing visual of help, right? When you look around the world, you would say people need help. There's people starving. There's people that need water. There's people that need homes. There's people that need clothing. There's people that need parents. There's people that need families. There's, there's people that are suffering, right? Just even uh, this, this weekend, right? In India, there was a, tra a train derailment, killed 280 people, 900 people are going to the hospitals, 
right? You don't have to look far. Just pull up your news app. And you're like, people need help. What's interesting is this, as we navigate the statement that is, I think that we first, we know that we need help, but I also think this phrase tells me something, that we're looking for help in all the wrong places. Right? We may recognize that we need help, Right? God helps those who help themselves, but we are looking for it in all the wrong places. It's interesting, there's a Barna study there, they're a very popular research firm that mainly kind of surfaces around spirituality, churches, things of that nature. The Barna Research Group found that just over 50% of believers, those who would say they follow Jesus, believed this to be true, this statement. And 75% of the general population found it to be true, right? This statement alone, inside of our world, inside of our culture, is a statement that a lot of people would attest to or say is true, whether they verbalize that or they just live it. And I think living inside of a spiritually individualistic culture, we tend to believe that we have control of our own lives, And that's where a lot of this statement derives from. Is that I have control over my own life and what I want to do with it, not only mentally, emotionally, physically, but even spiritually, I can dictate what I believe, how I believe it, and where I want to believe it in. And all of a sudden, this statement, which may be verbalized, we don't say as we pass each other on the street, is there in function as a part of my life because often we sit in the seat that God is supposed to sit in. We sit in the seat that God is supposed to sit in and we ask him to co-pilot as needed. God helps those who help themselves, tells me that God is second in the equation and I am first, which means that I believe that I'm God and he is just someone that helps me as I need it to be. The reality is this, that I, we, nationally, maybe even across the world, wrestle with this conversation, and I think we try to run harder, work harder to find the solution, and yet we're missing the true solution, which I would believe is Jesus. Now, doesn't mean, right, that we can just sit back and let the world pass by in our lazy boys. It's not what I'm saying. But I think we have to recognize ultimately who is in the seats and how I respond. Because this is what Paul would say in Romans 5. This is what Paul writes to the church in Rome. When we were utterly helpless, which I love, this is the NLT version, I love that translation, how they, they, they lay that out. Utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Paul is also telling us the same thing. We need help. We are utterly helpless, which means not just you're helpless, but you can't do anything about it yourself. He recognizes we need help. But where does he point to? Not inside of you, not through you, not because of you, but because of what Jesus has done for us, who he is and how he leads us through that. This is where we're going today. Jesus is our Savior, right? Jesus is our Savior. Last week, we we asked the question, who is God, right? And if you missed last week, 
check out last week. Also in the back, you'll see all these series guides. It goes through 20 days. It walks you through the entire story of God in Scripture. So it'd be worthwhile grabbing one of these because hopefully you'll be able to wrestle with some of these conversations in more detail, right? And if we need a Savior, if we need help, it tells me that I cannot do it myself, that I need someone else. And that's what we're going to wrestle with today. But I love what Paul writes here, right? What the translation says. Paul says that when we were utterly helpless... But what does that mean? What is he writing about and what is he articulating in that? This is what I would say. It's not on the screen. I would say what he means by utterly helpless, you can equate that to sinfulness. That we are spiritually deprived, that we are spiritually devastated, that you and I are utterly helpless spiritually to do anything for what is going on inside of our heart, which Paul would say is sin right? Tyler Stanton, he's a pastor out in Portland, Oregon. He would say this, sin is any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources. Sin is any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources, right? We know we need help, and yet it is so easy to meet the deepest needs of our life from our own resources, from our own energies, from our own kind of mustering up and pushing through. It's really easy to be our own saviors in practice, even if we don't say that verbally. And now, what's interesting is this. Before I get into sin and defining it and wrestling with it and looking at the Bible in it, right? Sin can be an interesting conversation to have inside of our cultural moments. It can be an interesting conversation to have inside of our cultural moment because this conversation of sin feels like an encroachment on my life. It's what it feels like right now. But the conversation of sin, in light of what we talked about last week in an individualistic and spiritually driven culture, feels like you're encroaching upon who I want to be and how I want to live life. If I am the highest God of my own life, then sin gets in the way of that being played out. And if you're coming to me and telling me that I am sinning, I am outside of the boundaries of something, then you are going to encroach upon what I truly believe. So sin, when we get into this, right, this is not a popular conversation inside of church just as much as outside of church, right? Because it pushes us to believe that we are not our own God, that actually there is someone who is bigger and better and who is God instead of us. Because individuality would say, I am the highest God or spiritual being. Who do I trust most? Myself. Who meets my deepest needs? Me. That's what individuality would say. Okay, sin is offensive and obstructive to that. Because if I'm trying to meet my deepest needs and you're telling me that that's a, a sin, then basically you're telling me my identity and everything I've wrapped my life in, right, is against what you would believe. How could that be? In spirituality, I think many people would see that is the need to feel good about myself. It's a way of trying to fill my deepest needs with good feelings, Right? I think that's how our world would see it. And sin is offensive and obstructive to that because sin doesn't give me good feelings. Right? Doesn't give me good feelings inside. It actually kind of twists my gut when you can think about it. And yet, I think our helplessness 
when we look at sin, it gives me a reason for hopefulness. If I wasn't recognizing, if I didn't recognize the helplessness I'm in, then I won't recognize the hopefulness that is in Jesus and what he has done. We're going to look at a passage of scripture in Psalm 51. We're just going to walk through it real briefly here. Because here, here is what I think we need to see inside of all of this. There's a, a character in the Bible, his name is David. And he writes a lot of the Psalms, right? Psalms were kind of the worship songs of the day. And what we're going to see is David, he just got, got done with this massive sin, which we'll explain sin. He's got done this massive sin of killing someone and then sleeping with that person's wife, okay? And so that is a big deal. That is not a good thing, by the way, right? And so he is wrestling with this. He's hidden this. He has, he has kind of put this to the side. And he has a prophet come to him and say, hey, you need to come to God with this. And so this psalm is David running into God with what has been done inside of his life. That's what we're going to read, okay? And Ella, by the way, I think I changed some slides here, so we might be jumping around, okay? So this is what Psalm 51, 1 through 2 says. Have mercy on me. This is David crying out in prayer, kind of in worship to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Here's what I want you to see first. Sin is falling short of God's design. Sin is falling short of God's design. God created the universe. If we are to believe that, if he is the compassionate creator who has run into us but was at the beginning and created everything that you and I see around us, created our lives, he then, right, we need to believe that he then created design to be lived out in his world. And if we trust him as creator of the universe, there's a specific design and order which points back to him and points us to live by. And the created order says that God is God and the design of this world was perfect. And if I am living outside of that design, then I am falling short of what God desires for my life. And ultimately what we'll see is not just falling short of some moral law, but I'm falling short even relationally with the God of the universe. Now, David, interesting enough, uses three different words for sin, which I love, right? We just say sin, and it has a lot of different connotations, right? Sin is my kids fighting over a toy, right? We put that in the same conversation as the sin that David right, committed, right? And we ultimately see this spectrum. But David uses three different words that are quite, quite interesting. The first one is iniquity, which would mean a moral impurity, Iniquity is a rebellion against God's design. It is saying that I see that, God. I see how you designed us to live. I see how you designed us to be in relationship. I see how you designed love. I've seen how you designed this to be lived for my best sake, but I'm going to live outside of that in rebellion to it and do my own thing. Iniquity is a moral impurity. Transgression, he uses this word transgression, is stepping over the boundary. It's stepping over the boundary. Transgression is rebellion against God's authority. 
So it's not just this design thing where, yeah, I just kind of want to do this thing, but it's also transgression would, would say, I see your authority and I'm going to step over here and do my own thing and be my own authority inside of my own life, right? Well, we see this all the time inside of maybe our own lives. The best illustration, and I don't have a specific example, but if you're a parent, right, your kids step outside of your authority and do their own thing, right? I think that's how, that's how my parenting I go to, right? I'm like, what does God think of me, right? When I parent my kids, I'm like, man, that's how he interacts a lot in the sense of parenting us. So transgression is stepping over the boundary. It's a rebellion against God's authority. And sin, the word sin he uses is falling short of the target. It's falling short of the target. Right? Paul David Tripp, he kind of articulated these three definitions, which I think are really good. He would say a lot of times we say the word sin is missing the target. He would say, no, 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 it's actually always falling short of it. You're not even hitting the target. There isn't even, you're not even getting close to the target. You're always falling short of it. And what we see ultimately is sin is a rebellion against God's holiness. That we... We, when we sin, right, aren't even, we, we recognize we're not even close to God's holiness and the relationship that we're meant to have with him, that you and I are not perfect, that we can do no good. Romans 3 articulates this in so many ways. Romans 3, 10 through 11, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Paul's like, you want to know who's good? No one, right? What he's saying is this, the sin, the transgression, the iniquity, whatever it may be, right? It is something that's built inside of us. We're going to look at that next. It is a natural instinctive to play out. And what that means is that you and I, if we're built with that, if that's built into our life because of the fall, Adam and Eve, that you and I in and of ourselves can't be good, and that we're always going to be in rebellion against God's design, his authority, or his holiness in how we live and disconnected from him. Romans 3 continues, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Paul is saying there is each and every one of us, we have some dirtiness in our hearts. And what that does is this, is it keeps me distant from relationship with God but also there is nothing I can do in and of myself to match up to God's glory and holiness because of the sin that is in me. I can't fix it by good works. I can't fix it by any amount of sacrifice or any amount of good deeds. That I will always fall short in and of myself. I will always fall short because the sin is this barrier in between me and God and relationship and ultimately living that out. Not even close there's something internally that I cannot fix. There's something internally that's crying out for help. There's something internally that you and I are wrestling with, and we may not always see it as this, but this is the root of it. Sin is not just behavior. It is a natural thing for us. Sin is not just a behavior first, but it is a natural instinct for us, which may be weird for you to grapple with. I think a lot of times we look at our lives or other people's lives and we point to the external proof and say they're sinning. 
They're a sinner, right? And yet, the deepest thing about sin is it's not just a bunch of external things that I messed up on. It is actually something that you and I are born with and that is instinctively inside of our heart at birth and instinctively grabbed onto by doing of these external behavioral things. We'll be more bent towards that because what's going on in our heart. Psalm 51, 5 through 6, this is what uh, David would say. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Here's the reality. We're all born sinners. But because of Adam and Eve's fall, we each are born sinners, and it becomes the nature that you and I are kind of born into, and we just live off of. You and I aren't first looking externally. There's something internally that's pushing us towards that external behavior, decision, temptation. It's not just get rid of those things. I have to have something change inside of me. And until that happens, we will never see an external change, no matter how much I kind of protect myself, clothe myself, or make myself look pretty on the outside. Here's an example. Just a couple weeks ago, we had to have the Orkin man come out. Woofy, yay, right? My bank account loves me now, right? Because here's the reality. We started to see things in our basement, these little kind of, I don't know, they looked like little holes, and they had little like, almost like, looked like something dug into them, and all the extras were out, and, and we realized that they were ants. They were ants burrowing into the basement floor. And Jess was like, you think that's a problem? I was like, no, I don't think it's a problem at all. I'll just clean it up and it won't be there again. So I cleaned it up. It was there again. My wife was right. She's like, we need to call the Orkin people. I'm like, okay. So we had the Orkin person come out. And they came out and said, sure enough, there's ants in the basement. And they said this. They said, actually, right, it's not just the basement, but they're all around your house. Your whole yard is filled with ants and different bugs and things like that. And if not treated the foundation of your house will be impacted severely, which could lead to worse things. Now, can you imagine if I looked at the Orkin man and said, thank you for your assessment. I appreciate what you've done coming out and telling me that there is something deeper at play. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to make my landscaping look really nice and plant some flowers around where the ants are getting in, and we're going to be just fine because it'll look great on the outside even though they're doing damage on the inside. And that's exactly how we can treat sin. Is we see the external and we're saying if we just build it up enough and we make it look pretty enough, then we don't have to worry about what's going on in there. Because it's just a behavior, right? And what David would say is, no, there's a deeper problem. It's in your basement. And the foundation is going to crack and fall if something doesn't get done. Which leads me to this. That sin... It's falling short of God's design. It's first behavioral, and then or, or it's not first behavioral, but first natural. And sin is relational. It's relational. The reason that we're talking about it being connected to your heart first is because it's connected to the most important relationship that you and I exist in, which is between us and God. I don't know if you believe in God. If you believe in Jesus, you're just here, you're welcome here. 
not sure what your relationship with God looks like, and that's okay. I believe that no matter what you believe or where you're at, that the most important relationship that you and I are wrestling with, grappling with, is the relationship between you and God. And David writes this in to the psalm, Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge, right? And what's interesting about David there is he's just kind of laying it out to God. And not only is he laying it out, but he is giving God the rightful seat in his life. I know it's you and you only, and I know that you have the right to judge me in full, and I'm asking you for mercy. I think a lot of times when I sin, I think about maybe the person that it's impacting. I may not think about anybody because I could care less, right? But I think about it's the person that I'm impacting. And there's a lot of times that even though I may think about the horizontal, which is important, okay? I'm not saying it's, it's not important, but I lose sight at looking at the most important relationship that it impacts, which is God. That ultimately, when each and every one of us sin, have a transgression and iniquity, it is first and foremost against the God of the universe because he has built in us to have a relationship with him and we are running from him. And if he's the God of the universe, he's created his design, his order, his authority is over all, then anything I would do to butt against that is first and foremost against him and then it's against the person or the people that horizontally are impacted. That ultimately... As we see this, our sin separates us from relationship with the holy God of the universe. It gets in the way of that because in that we are trusting our own resources, way of life, and knowledge to lead us. And if I'm leading myself, I'm not being led by him. And if God says who he says he is, then first and foremost, our sin is against him. And David just kind of goes on a litany of what is sin and what does this look like? Because that leaves us with a very glim, a very despair kind of image of our lives. Because if sin is falling short of God's design and I can do nothing in and of myself to get to that level, if it is first not behavior, but first natural, and it's deep into the heart, woven into the heart the nature of who I am, I can't get down there with a shovel or pickaxe and try to pluck it out. And then it's relational, which means it's not just stopping doing the quote-unquote bad things, but ultimately it's against the relationship that you and I function in. What do we do about it? You talk about helplessness. You talk about needing help. And for some of us, we're there we may recognize that we're living inside of sin or living inside of, of our own way of life or living outside of the design of God. Maybe it's that relationship. Maybe it's that addiction. Maybe it's that temptation. Maybe it's the things that are holding you and you're trusting in yourself so much and trying to hold on. What I love about the story of God is this. Why our helplessness leads to hopelessness or hopefulness is because he ran in after us. 
Take a look at this graph. It's from a book by John Mark Comer. And I think what it articulates is what trends we kind of can walk through as we try to deal with our helplessness. Let me explain this, okay? I think all the things on the right, if you just imagine a mountain, and you can add your own story in there. It doesn't have to be those belief systems. But I think oftentimes when you and I recognize there's a helplessness inside of us, we stand at the foot of the mountain and our natural tendency is to climb, 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 climb. And that's what other religions would tell us to do. It's what our belief systems would tell us to do. And that maybe is what your own heart is telling you to do. Well, if I just get out of this mess, if I just put up the the blocks, if I just don't go there, if I just don't do this, if I just spend more time with God, if I just get to church more often, then maybe I'll get to this point where I don't struggle with that anymore. What you'll end up seeing is this is that you can go as hard as you want. First, you'll never reach the the pinnacle of the mountain. But second, you'll realize very quickly that that mountain gives you no hope even if you got to the pinnacle of it because it's still void of the help that you need, which is a Savior who inverted the whole mentality. And instead of saying, climb up to me, which ultimately the God of the universe, Yahweh, who we talked about last week, is greater than anything else. And instead of us climbing, climb, 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 and him inviting us, get up here faster, try harder, he sent his son to us. And his son came humbly to serve and to save the lost, ultimately offering us something that you and I cannot do on our own. And that's where we find the rest of Romans 5. Romans 5 articulates this understanding of what takes place when we're utterly helpless. Paul writes this, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came. That's that graph. doesn't say, and Joel climbed. It says Christ came at just the right time, died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Here's what I'd write down. My helplessness is hopefulness in Jesus. My helplessness is hopefulness in Jesus. That I have to recognize I am helpless to see the hopefulness in Jesus and what he has to offer. Jesus came while we were still sinners. That should shock us. I love how Paul says it. He's like, for an upright person, oh, it's debatable. But for for someone who's especially good, maybe someone would give up of their life to serve them, to save them. And yet the irony and the profound mystery is this, that God so loved us, he sent his son while we were still sinners. While we were still in the mess, in the yuck. He doesn't say, clean up yourself and then present yourself to me. He says, run into me, trust me, believe me, believe what I've done for you on the cross and through my resurrection. I lived the life you could not live. I died the death that you deserved and I rose again so that you could have life. Attach your life to mine. 
What I love is Paul says this, just at the right time. Jesus' timing is perfect. His timing is perfect. There's scholars that would say culturally, inside of the world that Jesus entered, it was perfect, right? Where the religious system was, that the Roman authorities were in control of things, that, that the, the message would get out in such a way. But also, I think individually, that is true. At just the right time. Because here's the reality. I think for a lot of us, the moment that we connected our life to Jesus was in the deep, utter helplessness that we were in. There's, there's maybe some of us, but not many of us that are like, I just kind of walked in, it's like, yeah, that's kind of a cool thing, and I gave my life. It was when you were in the mess. It was when you were in the yuck. It was when you didn't have anything figured out and you were completely helpless. The storm was raging and Jesus wrecked your life in such a good way by saying, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. The reality is this. We have to recognize we're helpless. We do. Before we can ever see the hope that Jesus offers through what he's done for us. And what I love is this. Jesus' timing is perfect, and Jesus does not dismiss sin. Paul writes it in there, while we were still sinners. Right? It's not like Jesus came in and said, let's just kind of move past that part. I've saved you. He's like, the reason I'm here is because you are helpless in the sin that you are in. He's like, I've forgiven you, now go and sin no more. I've saved you, now go live under this new name, this new purpose, this new meaning. He recognizes that we are sinners. He calls it to the table and he says, do you see? And then do you see what I've done for you in the midst of all that? Now follow me. My greatest need, I'm lost, helpless, confused, broken, rebelling. That's when Jesus came in. And what I love about Jesus' grace is he invites us to repent. That's what I see in this. My helplessness is hopefulness in Jesus because he invites me to repent. This turning of direction, this 180, this I'm going to change the direction of my life and attach it to Jesus. What I love about the psalm passage we're in, verse 16 and 17, it's not on the screen, but it says this, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Here's the reality. David's like, what you want most is a heart that is broken because of the sin that I am living in, because of the rebellion that I'm living in, and a heart that is broken will see the kindness and grace and love of Jesus in turn and embrace it, what he has to offer us. The reality is that's where it starts, seeing your help, help, helplessness. For some of us, that's where today starts and ends. You're trying to be your own savior trying to do this thing on your own, you only trust yourself and you are not seeing any hope through it. What Jesus offers is so much more. And he says, in your helplessness, I've come to save you. But it starts by recognizing that you are helpless, that you can't do it on your own and you need him. Secondly, Romans 5, 9 through 10 tells me this. 
Paul says, and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Simply, Jesus saves us. Our helplessness points to his hopefulness in Jesus. Jesus saves us. What does Jesus save us from? Yes, our sin. Yes, our rebellion. But also saves us from God's wrath. Which for a lot of us, we're like, what? Where'd that come in, right? He saves us from the condemnation that would be poured out by God. Let me illustrate it like this, right? Think about a king, a great and majestic king who rules over the land. And you were living life in such a way that you were trying to dethrone the king and take his seat where he rightfully sits. It's the imagery that came up when I think about the sin of our life. It's like we're trying to dethrone the king. It's a relational thing. It's not just, I did this thing and we can move on. There's something inside of me that is trusting in myself before I trust in the God of the universe. And as I actively live inside of sin and the brokenness and the lostness of my life, that is first a heart issue. It is like I'm trying to dethrone the king and sit in his seat. And the king who is, who is worthy, holy, majestic, and is the judge of the world has every right, has every right to judge us because of that. That ultimately, if we live in sin, live without Jesus, we are just walking into eternity separated from God. We're walking into eternity that doesn't exist in relationship with him, that exists very far from and is punishing. It's called hell. And what Jesus says is, I've come to save you. I've come to save you from that. Instead of condemning them, he says, I have inflicted this upon my son. I, I, my son went to the cross and he took the full wrath of God. So he could extend the mercy of God to us. But when you look at the cross, it's not just an image we wear. It is Jesus taking for us what you and I deserve so that we could wear the righteousness of God. That through Jesus, we are saved. And to experience that judgment, to experience life through him. We get saved by what Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus' grace invites me to believe. His death and resurrection paid our sin, canceled it, released it so we could be saved by his blood. And he invites me to believe. The question I've asked is this, are you believing in yourself instead of Jesus? Are you believing in yourself instead of Jesus? I can do it. I can work hard enough. I can kind of cover it enough and do this enough. Or are you falling into the arms of the Savior who extended his arms for you and I and rose again so that we could inherit the life that he paid the penalty for us to? Then lastly is this, Romans 5, 11. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, right? Through Jesus, we have this new relationship. This is beautiful because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Lastly, I would say this, Jesus changes us. We go from enemies to friends, 
right? When you're living in sin, when you're living separate from God, you're living not following after Jesus, you are living as an enemy of God, trying to dethrone him constantly. And what Jesus did is he came towards us and he served and he, he sought after those that were in the messiness of life. And he lived this life perfectly. He never sinned. He never had a transgression. He never had iniquity. He, he never dethrones the God, his father, off of the throne. And then he died the death that you and I deserve. He rose again. And he said, if you attach your life to me, yes, you're saved. But also everything changes. That's where a lot of us, we live in the old, forgetting the new. We live in the old, forgetting the new. So we live in the old temptations, the old way of life, because we forget what he has called us into, and he's given us a new name, a new meaning, a new purpose, a new mission, a new community. And he invites us to follow him. Some of us are just following, just following the ways of the world, following the things, because we forgot he's done for us. The fact of the matter is this, when you've said yes to Jesus, you go from being an enemy to a friend, you go from an enemy to a child of God, you go from an enemy to an ambassador. And the motivation isn't trying harder to follow him better. The motivation is he loved me so much, I want to keep pursuing him as much as I can. Are you going to fail at that sometimes? Yes. His grace is enough. And as you continue to follow him, he transforms you and continues to make you new. I equate it to like a child growing up. My kids don't know a lot about the world right now. And as they grow up, they are going to learn a lot about the world, right? My hope is that I can bring them along and trust me. Trust me when I say, don't just walk across the road without looking both ways, right? And Jesus says, follow me. Because as you follow me and you trust me, you'll start to see the path that I have laid out for you, the design that I have led you into, and it is a better way. It's a more full way. It's a way connected to me. So as the worship team comes up, here would be my invitation to you. Are you trying to help yourself this morning? In your helplessness, are you trying to help yourself? I do this all the time. I do it all the time. Right? What I tend to do is when I'm stressed, anxious, tired, exhausted, I can't figure out a relational problem, I can't figure out a ministry problem, I can't figure out you know, why the ants are around our house the way they are and all that stuff. I just go harder. I just go harder. Shaboom, shaboom, shaboom. Get more work done, wake up earlier, go to bed later, try to get it done. And I run myself into the grounds. For some of us, that's how we deal with our sin spiritually. I messed up again. I hit the ground harder. Wake up earlier, go to church more, be in more groups, study the Bible more, do this more. And you're running yourself into the ground with good things. Don't get me wrong. But you're bypassing the better person, the greater person who has saved you from that. 
And instead of trying to figure it out myself, what would it look like if I invited him into the equation? So here's what I want to leave you with, okay? This is equally, whether you've been here for a few weeks or been here a lot of weeks. You don't know if you're following Jesus or you followed Jesus a long time. Is I want you to this week find 15 minutes. Why 15? I don't know. 15. Because you'll get maybe mentally in a space at some point in that 15, right? And I want you to, in prayer, ask God to reveal to you if you are helping yourself or is Jesus the one helping? Are you trying to be your own savior in this life or is Jesus? And you might be in two different groups. You might be here and Jesus and this conversation is a new thing and, and you're, you're wrestling with all that. I would invite you to spend that 15 minutes asking God to reveal to you in your own heart, am I trusting in myself? Am I actually trusting in Jesus? Maybe for the first time, you'll trust in Jesus and start to follow after him and start to believe that he is who he says he is. And your life will start to bear the fruits of that behaviorally. But there's another group of us where maybe you are right now actively following Jesus. Yep, you got your things. Yep, that's, it. you know, life is hard, but you're running into Jesus and you know others around you that are helpless and they've not connected their life to Jesus yet. Would you spend 15 minutes praying for them by name? Listen, listen. That is a long, persistent, patient prayer that will not most likely happen like this. And yet, would you commit, we say pray for your three, would you commit to at least three names that are not following Jesus, that are living in their own way of life, not out of condemnation for them, but out of mercy toward them? 15 minutes, just 15 minutes in a seven-day week. That's all I'm asking. What would it look like if we just got to our knees and asked God to reveal our hearts and potentially reveal to other hearts who Jesus is? Thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to reach out and connect with us or hear more about Grace Church, you can head to barberton.gracechurches.org for more information. We meet in person at 1030 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 629 Wesleyan Ave in Barberton. Have a great day.